Hi, this is Melissa Friedman, co-founder and co-artistic director of Epic Theater Ensemble in New York City. You are listening to Point of Learning with my friend Peter Horn. I am so excited to hear this conversation with Oscar Eustace. On today's show, a titan of American theater discusses the dramatic possibilities of the classroom. Connect and spark and kindle each other. There's a human connection between the people in the room, that, that people in the room are together getting excited about that third thing, that play or that idea or that way of making it. And when that happens, people are learning from each other, not information, but they're learning from the connection that they form with each other, which is, of course, what theater is all about. Plus a thing or two he's never shared before in an interview. What I'm going to talk about is, uh, it's actually somebody I've never talked about, but my high school drama teacher, Carl Schutz. And his unprecedented plan to release the rights of Hamilton to high schools before professional regional theaters. It would make, in high schools across the country, the theater department the cool place to be. And what a change that would be. What a change it would be to be saying to young teenagers of color, urban teenagers, you know what? Yes, there's hip-hop. Yes, there's music. Yes, but you know what there also is? It's this theater. Come do it there. I mean, it'd just be a huge boon for a profession to bring in talent like that. If it's possible to be a prodigy of the theater, I don't mean as an actor, but as a director, producer, and dramaturg, as somebody who makes theater happen. Oscar Eustace is such a prodigy. Founding his first theater company at the age of 16, after moving to New York from Minnesota, Eustace has been intimately involved in the creation and development of a significant number of the greatest works of US theater of the past 30 years, from Angels in America to Hamilton, and many, many more. Throughout the 1980s, Oscar worked at the Eureka Theater Company in San Francisco, moving in 89 to the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, where he commissioned and directed the world premiere of Tony Kushner's landmark, Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes. From 94 to 2005, he was artistic director of the Trinity Repertory Company in Providence, which was the period where I got to meet him, first as a director and then a professor which may not be the most memorable element to Oscar from this chapter of his life, but it's my podcast. Oscar's been a champion of new plays throughout his career, directing world premieres by Rena Groff, Larry Wright, Paula Vogel, Philip Kahn-Gatanda, David Henry Huang, Emily Mann, Susan Laurie Parks, Ellen McLaughlin, Eduardo Machado, the list goes on. Since 2005, Oscar has been artistic director of the Public Theater in downtown Manhattan famous first for founder Joe Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival and Shakespeare in the Park, but in the years since is the birthplace of the musicals Hair, uh, Chorus Line, and during Oscar's tenure, the adaptation of Alison Bechdel's Fun Home and Lin-Manuel Miranda's revolutionary Hamilton, an American musical. It was my pleasure to join Oscar in his office at the public last month, where we sat down to talk about the teacher who helped set Oscar on his path about what teachers today might do with Shakespeare in the classroom, about drama and its connection to democracy, and of course, a little Hamilton, in addition to current projects that the public theater is undertaking. Given the many sources of material available, I knew I wouldn't have too much trouble sketching a brief bio of Oscar at the outset, but I did ask him what he wanted me to highlight. Here's what he said. Plus the sound of me suddenly adjusting the mic when I realized he was opening with what would not be ordinary background material. From my point of view, the most important parts of my biography when I look back is that I was raised by communists. I was raised by a recovering alcoholic. I didn't go to college. I didn't have an academic education. And that I basically started from making theaters myself for nothing with friends and built that up until 
uh, I ended up here at the public. So that there was nothing sort of top-down about how my career developed. It was all sort of built up from the, from the bottom, so to speak. You left Minnesota when you were 15? Yeah, I, I, I turned 16 about four weeks later. Okay. So. But, but you had graduated high school? Yeah, I graduated high school at 15. Was that skipping two grades? Yeah. Or, well, the, the essence of it was Minnesota's last-ditch attempt to avoid forced busing because this was the early 1970s, and uh-huh. Minnesota was desperately trying to avoid forced busing, as, as were many cities in the country. So they created a magnet school in the all-black school central in Minneapolis where, and literally this was sort of the, the, the value proposition, any white kid with a B-plus or better average who would voluntarily bus himself into this central high school could graduate early. So what they did was take, uh, this would have been 1972, take a bunch of liberal hippies with you know, parents who would approve this kind of thing, who were smart and and white, and put them in an all-black school and give them special privileges. Yeah. <laughs> it was maybe the worst educational huh. idea I've ever got. But it meant I'd already skipped a grade earlier, and it meant I could skip another grade, which is something I would never advise to anybody, and that's why I got it when I was 15. But And then you helped to co-found a theater, where you did co-found a theater, a Red Wing. Yeah, exactly. Moved to New York. after the... Town in Minnesota, though. Of course, I mean, it is. Okay, you bet you betcha. Um, it's uh, the rare day today that I'm not wearing Red Wing boots. I take okay. I take Red Wing very seriously. But yeah, here in New York, I came to New York, um, lived at the Performing Garage, met a young Swiss uh, theater guy named Stefan Muller, who had um, uh, gotten a grant from the Swiss government to come over here for two years to study experimental theater. We teamed up, and together we founded Red Wing in February of 76, I guess. And that was my first theater company. I took your Modern American Drama course during the summer of 2003. And I began, and after I had been teaching English for six years. As a teacher, one of the things I noticed was your the reverence that you seemed to have for teaching and your stated wish to do it as well as you could. You were modest about your teaching ability, um, disclaiming something at the outset of the course like, well, if you don't get much out of the class itself, at least you will have read some great plays. The summer course at the Middlebury Breadloaf School of English was called the Modern American Drama and included works by a spectrum of writers, including Cuban and Canadian First Nations, Asian American, Native American, Latino, Puerto Rican, Black, Jewish, lesbian, and gay playwrights, each illuminating conflicts in what it is to be human by means of different lenses. If you're curious about specific authors and titles, the course reading list is on the show page. How do you think about the role of teaching? You know, this is an education podcast, so I wanted to ask... That line about, uh, you know, even if I'm not a good teacher, at least you will have read a lot of good plays, that was actually my mother's line. Oh, yeah? My mother said that about teaching. Um, She was chair of women's studies at the University of Minnesota, and she said that was what she said to, in order to calm herself down and Hmm. suggest that she was not wasting the time of her students no matter what. Of course, she was a wonderful teacher. It, there's a couple of different things. On the one hand, in that class, for example, on the one hand, what's happening is students are coming to contact with what I think are some of the great works of art, uh, of theater art of our history. And they're by putting that together, they're starting to understand a an arc of what the theater has done in the United States. It's, you, you, you start to see a story there and start to understand how plays fit into that story and therefore maybe able to start to imagine your own story. And the other end of what's happening, I hope, is there's an infectious quality of excitement. You gotta figure out a way in the classroom that your enthusiasm or excitement for something as a teacher, but also your students' enthusiasm can connect and spark and kindle each other. And then what you start finding is there's a human connection between the people in the room, that that people in the room are together getting excited about that third thing, that play, or that idea, or that way of making it. And when that happens, 
people are learning from each other not information, but they're learning from the connection that they form with each other, which is, of course, what theater is all about. <laughs> That's what theater depends on. As he was growing up, Oscar's parents and step-parents were all educators. She was chair of women's studies, uh, undergraduate women's studies at the University of Minnesota. Okay. My stepfather was a professor of physics. My stepmother was a professor of sociology in the Humphrey Institute. And my father was a professor in the law school. <laughs> so, so, you know, although I didn't spend that much time in the classroom as a student, I was, you know, living in a world that was completely surrounded by educators. Was there a teacher for you who was who was influential? There were a lot, um, but the the one I'm going to talk about is uh, it's actually somebody I've never talked about, but my high school drama teacher Carl Schutz. And Carl, um, you know, was in the English department, and like in a lot of high schools, you know, he was in the English department. But he ran the drama program because you know <laughs> that's what English departments did. This school was, as I said, it was an all-black high school. I say all-black until all these white kids showed up. So it was about 15% white kids. And Carl's room was a completely integrated room. It was almost the only activity that happened at Central High School that was genuinely integrated. The black kids and white kids sports were all black kids. And Carl had just started teaching. Um, is actually his mother was a longtime English teacher at Central High School. And he, the year I arrived, which would have been 73, he had just begun teaching there. And the enthusiasm he had, and the, just, uh, here's something I remember completely, is we did a, we did a, a scene study class, all of semester-long scene study class. And then when we got to the end of the grading period of the class, this is what he, he sat out in the hall, sent us in to do our scenes in front of our classmates. Then we came out and we gave ourselves a grade for how well we did. <laughs> just, my little mind was blown. But what was so beautiful about that is it totally did what it was, it put the focus on me thinking about what do I think about how well I'm doing? I might have mentioned earlier that the sixth train of the New York subway runs right beneath the public theater. I've tried my best to limit the rumbling in post-production. Also, I want to underscore the impact of this drama teacher, Carl Schutz, who asked students for input about their learning. What Oscar was just talking about, having students assess themselves. It can go wrong, of course. Like any strategy or policy or plan, how you do it, your implementation counts for 90%. But here's a case where it went very right. Carl Schutz got Oscar thinking critically about what he was doing in this theater class. A few years later, Oscar began a career helping others think critically about the plays they were writing and acting in and producing. Yeah, teachers. Mr. Schutz was also, I was surprised to learn, responsible for a nudge in this direction. He was a great influence on me. You, um, he got me my first job. Really? Yeah. He, there was a program, which you're too young to remember, it was called the CETA program, Comprehensive Education and Training Act. CETA was an extension of the Works Progress Administration, WPA, from the 30s, signed into law by President Nixon in 1973 when I was negative two. What it was doing was it gave federal grants to nonprofits mm -hmm. who could then turn around and use those grants to put young people, teenagers, on salary as a way of interesting them in a life in the nonprofit sphere. And it went to all sorts of nonprofits. It was a great program. And Carl heard that there was a settlement house um, called the Pillsbury Wade Cultural Arts Center that had a children's theater program that had gotten a CETA grant and could hire a teenager to come work with them. And I went and I did that. I was making $80 a week in 1974, which was a fortune. I fell in love with the theater. And CETA did exactly what CETA was supposed to do, which is it took a you know, uh, ambitious and talented young man who didn't know where he belonged and it introduced him to the nonprofit theater and by God, that's what I've been doing for the last 45 years. Most English language arts curricula for middle and high school yeah. students include plays, yeah. right? Um, often Shakespeare, maybe some Ibsen, 
one or two Greeks, yeah. right? Not always, but usually these um, works are approached more or less as written texts. There's often a wide chasm between drama as literature and drama as performance. What do you think about this approach? You know, we've we've been through this a lot in, in, in our various incarnations, Peter, but if you don't get those words in your mouth, if you don't stand up and start embodying those plays, you don't know what the work of art of a play is. You are you're, you're that what's on the pages is like studying the score of a symphony and saying you understand the symphony. That's just the score for the event, which is between people, two people embodying, five people, 18 people in the case of Shakespeare, embodying people, interacting with each other. That's the art form itself. That the, the, the written piece is just the notation for the art form. So in addition to it being true, this is also tremendously useful in terms of engaging people, engaging young people, is that you start to realize that the theater and the art of the theater is a full three-dimensional embodied reality. It's not a literary intellectual reality. It, it struck me, it struck me when you were in conversation with Paul Azan, I think it was on Arts TV or Channel 13, it was a few years ago, uh, but you, you called Shakespeare the most accessible um, writer in the history of the English language, but you followed that up with immediately with uh, everyone who sees his plays, right. you know, seeing him, they fall in love immediately. That's what, it, it, so there is that, there is that caveat. Yeah, I've had the experience over and over, we take Shakespeare into prisons. We take Shakespeare into homeless shelters. We put Shakespeare in front of people who not only haven't seen Shakespeare, they've never seen a play in their lives. And what I watch, because very often the people come in with trepidation, uh, anxiety, uh, uh, you know, prison audiences are literally captive audiences and they're mm -hmm. not necessarily there because they want to be at your performance. Sure. And watch, watch them watching and realize that after about five minutes, they are understanding. And it's not just that they're understanding, they're interested and they start to care. And then there's this whole secondary reaction of them realizing themselves, oh my God, I understand Shakespeare. And there's this elevation that comes when there was this thing that has always sounded like inaccessible and that's high culture, it's not for you, it is for me too. I can get it. And I think it's a tremendously um, uh, uplifting thing when people understand that Shakespeare is for them. And the the, the precursor to opening the, the formal, we're calling it the public, right, was a kind of Shakespeare project. Wasn't that the original thing that Joe Papp did? The original like in the thing. 40s, maybe? Well, it started out in 1954 as the uh, New York Shakespeare Workshop. Okay. And the next year became the New York Shakespeare Festival, which legally we still are. Our name is the New York Shakespeare Festival. Oh, okay. And Joe put Shakespeare on the back of flatbed trucks and parked it in parks and parking lots and housing projects around the five boroughs and it was a huge success from the moment he started it. Um, and the, one of the things that I am so stunned by is he started in 1954. He was doing his, a volunteer job while he worked as a stage manager for CBS television. Eight years later, the city of New York built the Delacorte Theater for him. In that fast a span, he had turned the Shakespeare Festival into an institution that the city of New York was never going to let go. Wow. Yeah, it's great. One of the problems with the encounters uh, with Shakespeare that lots of kids right. um, and some teachers uh, have in, in high school, middle school, um, what would you recommend to supplement um, the, you know, given that there's limited class time, you know, not everybody can, you know, can, can get to theater. What would be some alternatives that you might recommend? Well, the simplest thing is have the kids act it out and don't worry about big, long sections of the play because some of the words are difficult. Uh, what they mean is difficult. Pronouncing them can, can be difficult. But take some hot sections of the play. Take the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Take the forum scene from Julius Caesar. And then talk to the kids. I mean, help them understand what the words mean. 
Help them understand how to pronounce it. But talk to them in acting terms. Talk to them about what Mark Antony is trying to do. And let that, let them compete. And who can rile up the class the best? Who is the most convincing order? Who, you know, understand what the action is and then let them then suit the word to the action. Let them use the language to try to do what the character's trying to do. And that's the magic key that just springs it in life. And suddenly you start understanding, as of course, if we think about it, I've spent my life doing Shakespeare. There are many words I don't understand in Shakespeare. There's many sentences that I can't be sure of exactly what it means. But if I know what the character's trying to do, it doesn't matter. I don't, because I'm following mm-hmm. what he or she is after. And that's the thing that, to me, if you could unlock that in the kids, then they can feel a sense of mastery of Shakespeare that I think is empowering. Is there a... Uh is there a play or two or three um, that you might, that you would, uh, that you would like to see more younger people have experience with, given that some of the things don't, you know, necessarily come to life? Oh, Peter, I don't know, because remember, I'm not an educator. I'm certainly not a K through twelve educator. So, the plays that I suspect um, uh, exist most in the curriculum are Julius Caesar, Romeo and Juliet, and the Scottish play. Also known as Macbeth but that's bad luck to pronounce when you're in a theater. And those aren't bad examples. Those are each plays uh, that either don't have subplots or the subplots are minimal, mm-hmm. where the um, the characters are very big and boldly written, where Julius Caesar is about politics and assassination, Romeo and Juliet is about young love, and the Scottish play is, you know, a tragedy of ambition. They're, they're, they're easy to understand the feelings behind them. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I mean, Midsummer is actually, it's a beautiful play, but it's actually weirdly complicated. I don't know how kids respond to Midsummer. Um, As You Like It is my favorite play. It's, it's, I think, pure genius, but it's also very sophisticated. And, you know... Um, what exactly Rosalind is doing with Orlando is not a simple thing. Uh, she's pretending to be a boy, trying to teach him how to love a woman. So, of course, what she's doing on some level is she's teaching him how to be a husband before she'll accept him as a husband. And that's a beautiful thing, but it's a relatively grown-up thing. So I don't, I don't know. The, the, the real answer is I don't know, Peter. In my uh, high school English classroom, I was interested, among other things, in asking my students to think about their role as citizens. Toward this end, I used different drama process strategies Mm -hmm. and acting techniques uh, that asked students to imagine and embody, you know, uh, some other person from some other group with some other perspective or some set of them. This relationship between drama and being a citizen or playing a role in democracy was not always obvious to me. In fact, even as somebody who studied ancient Greek literature um, and history in college, I had not spent much time thinking about this connection before taking your class. Mm. Could you could you recap uh, for a moment that what you see as that fundamental sure. relationship between the Western ideas of drama and democracy? Sure. born at that same moment in Greece 2,500 years ago. Well, and of course, this is where my disclaimer that I'm not an academic really comes into force because <laughs> what I'm doing is I'm telling you a story and a story that's based on historical truth, but I'm not claiming historical accuracy for it. I'm claiming that it's telling a truth which is based on the fact that we know that democracy and drama were invented in the same city in the same decade literally the same decade, somebody had the idea in Athens instituted that power should flow from below to above, not the other way around. That people should be ruled by the consent of the governed, not by power or force. That is an unbelievably radical idea, which we've been unpacking for 2,500 years since. And of course, Athenian democracy was incredibly limited. It was limited to men. It was limited to landowners. It was a slave society. I'm not holding out Athens as some kind of model of the perfect democracy. But nonetheless, that idea that power flows from below was instituted there. 
in the same decade, in the Festival of Dionysius, a storyteller stopped telling a story directly to the audience and turned to their left and started talking to another person on stage. And the idea of dialogue was born. Suddenly, it's not a story that's being told to you. It's a story that's being enacted in front of you by characters. And my contention is that everything changes that moment. And partly, uh, what changes is the notion of truth. When I'm the storyteller telling a story to you, I am the unitary authority. I am the one who possesses the truth. I'm telling it to you. If I turn and talk to another character on stage, who then answers me back, and their answer has to dispute me because it's drama, it's conflict. So you have two points of view on stage conflicting with each other. And of course, the early Greek plays are literally only two points of view. They had two characters at a time. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you do that, you're saying the nature of truth is to be found in the conflict between different points of view. It's not somebody's possession. It's in the interaction with somebody else that you find out what the truth is. And if you don't believe that, you don't really believe in democracy. If you don't believe that, then you're an autocrat who's willing to put up with democracy until you can impose your ideas on everybody else. If you're really a Democrat, you actually believe that's how truth is discovered, in the struggle between different points of view. And of course, it's changing what it's asking an audience to do. Because instead of asking you to sit back and listen to my truth that I'm dispensing to you, and you are either agreeing with or just absorbing without even thinking about whether you agree with it, or if you're disputing it, you're just disputing it in the privacy of your mind, I'm asking you to lean forward and identify with me as a character and what I want. And then the other character starts to talk, and I'm asking you to identify with them what they want. And I'm not asking you to accept a truth. I'm asking you to imagine it from somebody else's point of view. Imagine what that truth feels like to Xerxes, what that truth feels like to Oedipus. What that... And by doing that, we're exercising the muscle of empathy. We're exercising something that is a key tool of citizenship, which is the ability to imagine somebody else's point of view and to understand that their point of view has validity and that it's in the clash and contrast of different points of view that truth can emerge. Those two things, the idea that truth is dialectical and the idea that empathy is a core human act, are, to me, they, are, they lie at the basis of theater, and they're also the things you have to believe if you're going to believe in democracy. They're the skills you have to practice if you're going to be a democratic citizen. I want to double click and just uh, you know follow up on that empathy issue yeah. uh, because as you uh, I think I mentioned it to you uh, I, I uh, was able to study uh, with Augusto Boal right. this the the year before he passed away it really was Amazing. a very fortunate experience yeah. at several levels. Boal was the Brazilian director, writer, and luminary who developed the radical form known as the theater of the oppressed. He was influenced by the German playwright and director Bertolt Brecht, whom we discuss in a second. But I was I, I was struck, and I think that there are probably some ways that he um, uh, reflects uh, Brecht's uh, ideas about that, that that empathy can go a couple of different ways, that it can be um, a, a force for, that could be radical, uh, or it, it engenders some kind of radical understanding or action. But it then it could also manipulate, um, coerce. Sure. Well, Brecht and Boal were both fighting the same thing, which I would call after Gramsci, uh, capitalist hegemony. And the problem with empathy in a society, in a capitalist society, and maybe it was true in a feudal society, I can't tell, is that empathy can simply reinforce the notion that the way things are structured is natural, that human, human motivation is a biological, natural, unchangeable fact, that human nature is the way things are, which is, of course, all a way of saying that private property is just the way God made it. God just made it that I own the factory and 500 people work in the factory and I take all the money that the factory makes and these guys make a pittance. That's just the way it is. That's just nature. And what Brecht, all of Brecht's techniques to try and disrupt simple empathy 
were designed to try and interrupt the idea that the world is unchangeable, that the world is composed of forces which all your only uh, recourse is to ex understand and accept them. His idea was that actually the world is changeable, that capitalism deliberately disguises itself as nature, just as the divine right of kings disguised itself as something eternal, and that in order to have a revolution, it's necessary to empower people to realize that they can change things that look unchangeable, things that look like their objects are actually relationships between people, and that you can change the nature of those relationships. So that he, you know, claimed for many, many years that his theater was anti-empathy. And it's just not true. It's not true in his plays, it's not true in his practice when you see the plays. What he was interested in was problematizing empathy, viewing empathy as one of the things mm -hmm. that was necessary. But another thing that he claimed was necessary, and he's right, I think, is the ability to critically reflect on what you or anybody else is doing. For me, the best example of this is Mother Courage. Mother Courage and Her Children, a Brecht play set during the Thirty Years' War, revolves around a woman who relies on selling merchandise during wartime for her personal survival. One by one, her three kids die, yet she continues her profiteering. You watch Mother Courage, and there's absolutely no question that he's asking you to care about Mother Courage and her kids. He's not asking you not to care. You absolutely are supposed to care about them. He wants you to care. You do care in any good production. But at the same time, you don't accept everything she does as a given. Mm -hmm. You, he, What he wants you to do is look at the choices she's making and look at the consequences of those choices. And by the end, what he's done is, I think, very radical, dramatically. He said that the moment of realization or illumination where we realize the truth of what has been under this doesn't happen on stage. Mother Courage never figures out what she's done. It happens in the audience. We're the ones who figure out, oh my God, mm. Mother Courage set out to defend her family at all costs. And what she achieved was the death of all of her children. Mm. And she did that because she was trying to define her universe, moral universe so narrowly that she couldn't actually have any impact on it. I'm only gonna care about my family. Mm -hmm. because she didn't care about the war, because she didn't care about the broader society. She actually was completely unable to protect her family. And we in the audience have a good production of the courage. We'll recognize that even if the character doesn't. You've spoken about theater as a place, uh, especially U.S. theater, as a place where various groups of Americans lay claim to citizenship. Absolutely. What do you mean by that? You know, you think there's terms that we use in the theater that are used um, casually and anecdotally by the public as a whole to put somebody center stage, to put someone in the spotlight. Those are theater terms. But when we say it in our common life, what we mean is to make somebody the center of attention, to uh, legitimize and even prioritize their experience, to allow them to be the subjects of their own life, the stars of their own life, not the supporting characters for somebody else's life. And the stage can do that quite literally. We hardly remember it now. But one of the things that O'Neill was doing was taking the Irish-American experience and putting it center stage and say, this is actually the quintessential American experience. Odette's and later Miller were taking the Jewish-American experience and saying, this is actually America. Mm -hmm. You can see it. August Wilson was taking the African-American experience. In other words, each of these, you see that by being protagonists of plays, people are able to step in front and say, my story is actually a central story of our culture. I am not a subsidiary character. I'm not the object of history. I'm the subject of it. And the theater is tremendously good at that and tremendously powerful at that because, of course, the theater always involves bringing a large group of people together to act and to watch. So you're actually doing that in 
relationship to real people. You're not on a screen somewhere. You're actually standing up, center stage, in the spotlight, in front of everybody, saying, this is my point of view. My, my favorite uh, writing about this was Alfred Kazin, the great yeah. critic, wrote in Growing Up in the 30s about what it was like seeing Odette's plays at the Belasco. Clifford, Clifford Odette. Clifford Odette's the okay. great, great writer of the Depression. And uh, Awake and Sing and uh, Waiting for Lefty wrote Paradise Lost. And Alfred could only afford the very cheapest seats, which were like a quarter in the second balcony at the Belasco, which is a long way from the stage. But he said, I would sit there and watch my aunt and my uncle and myself on stage with as much right as if they were Hamlet or Lear. Huh. And I believed that there was a place for me in America. And it's a beautiful passage. And that, that idea that you and somebody who represents your experience has as much right as Hamlet to be in the center of the stage. It's a beautiful way of articulating that notion that we have to be able to imagine ourselves as the center of our stories if we're going to be able to empower ourselves to make a difference in the world. To slide from uh, Hamlet to Hamilton. This is this is quite literally part of the project, um, and of course, I should say that you uh, produced um, the uh, certainly the original production of Hamilton, which was staged right here, uh, where we are at the Public Theater. Um, this radical casting choice, um, which I guess wasn't just casting, it's baked into the design right yeah. of the play that yeah. everybody should be non-white or almost everybody, almost everybody should be non-white, except for yeah. you know George the Third. Um, for a foundational story of yeah. Americanness, yeah. the U.S., this is part of that. This is part of that. There's no question. There's, uh, you know, the core idea behind Hamilton is to tell the story of the founding of America through the eyes of the only founding father who was a bastard immigrant orphan from the West Indies. And by doing that, claim America for every metaphorical bastard immigrant orphan from the West Indies or anywhere else in the world say that at the very founding immigrants were there at the very founding people from West India were there at the very founding people who had no money who had no education who had no privilege in life were there founding the country and that's a principle that's both there in the text of the show and the music of the show and it's of course there in the casting of the show so there's a unity among all of those things just as the language of the show is hip hop and rap, and that and Broadway musical theater and pop songs. I mean, there's a wide variety, but it's saying that we're going to tell this story in the language of the streets, not just about the bastard immigrant orphan from the West Indies. We're going to tell in the language of street culture of folks who've made this up, and then we're going to cast it with black, brown, Asian, Latino peoples. So that there's a moment in the very first song, Alexander Hamilton, which is incredibly striking, where on the one hand, the, the whole cast is just singing the story of how Alexander Hamilton mm -hmm. came from the West Indies uh, to New York. But on the other hand, there's a moment where that cast, as a whole, all just walks downstage and stands in a line across the front. And the, physically at that moment, this cast of black and brown people are claiming America's founding for themselves. And it's just thrilling watching it. It was astonishing to me. We just opened in London in December. And to my absolute shock, it works the same way in Britain, is that when that cast comes on, and it's all British people of color, all of the actors are British, and they're all, you know, from the former colonies, the black, yellow, uh, brown. And when they do it, you can feel the same energy in England that the audience is looking at, oh, this is our country now. This is what our this is what Britain is. It's not what we imagine from G.K. Chesterton and you know Arthur Conan Doyle. This incredibly diverse, multicultural cast is a representation of our country too, and it's uh, it's palpable in a way that is a lot different than happens in politics or political speeches. 
What do you uh, What do you know about um, some of the ways that Hamilton's being used in school? Um, just one. I, I was observing a class. It was an English class a couple of months ago, and they were you know studying Hamilton. But I imagine this, for example, would be one of the uh, great plays to do in history social studies classes as well. Do you know anything about how you know people are? Well, we have a program that I'm very proud of called Edgeham, where what we do, Edgeham, Eduham, you know, it's (laughs) the way young people talk these days. Why didn't I think of this last spring when I was trying to come up with names for my education podcast? What is in every one of the big cities where we are in New York, in London, in Chicago, and in Los Angeles, um, we bring 20,000 Title I school kids. Okay to the theater uh, for 10 bucks, so usually paid for by the schools every year. And there's a curriculum that goes out before there where the both teaches about Hamilton, but also basically encourages everybody to make up their own performance piece about American history. And on the day these kids come to the theater, they come in the morning and they perform those pieces on the stage, okay. and then they sit and watch it. And it's just fantastic. Um, the thing that we need to do, and I am uh, in very uh, lively discussion with my producing partners about this, the thing we need to do is release the rights for high schools to perform. Because uh-huh. my, my contention is we should, you know, normally you release the rights to high schools about 10 years after the right. show is closed on Broadway. My contention is let's release them right now so that for the next 10, 20 years, the only way somebody sees Hamilton is they see one of our shows or they see a high school doing it. And that's the only Hamilton. I think that would do nothing but drive more people to see Hamilton on the professional level. And what it would do to those theater departments and those urban schools, what it would do to the way that history departments and theater departments could collaborate, I I mean, it would be a huge gift to the nation. So I'm hoping to win that argument. Um, And it usually just for for my clarification, it's not just after the show closes is that like for example if it if it if it runs again usually you wouldn't be able to mount a production of any kind within like 75 miles or something yeah there's various exclusion zones 75 miles is the standard one for professional production so is this so is this kind of maneuver fairly unprecedented completely unprecedented yeah right it never would have been (laughs) but but peter my claim and you know my credentials for making this claim are perhaps a little skinny my claim is it's good business my claim is that but letting high schools do it would not uh, satiate people's desire to see our product, the professional productions of Hamilton. It would actually yeah. just increase it and encourage it, and also do a massive amount of good in the world. Yeah, what it would do to those uh, kids. I mean, and it's so. I mean, I, this is. The, let me talk in a very sort of narrow professional sense. Is that it would make in high schools across the country the theater department the cool place to be. And what a change that would be. What a change it would be to be saying to young teenagers of color, urban teenagers, you know what? Yes, there's hip hop. Yes, there's music. Yes, but you know what there also is? It's this theater. Come do it there. I mean, it'd just be a huge boon for a profession to bring in talent like that into our shabby little field. When I go into schools these days, the work I most like to support is efforts to promote civil discourse, uh, to model ways to engage difficult, respectful conversation with people who disagree with us. Um, It's critical, I think, for schools to do this because unless you're getting it around the dinner table, which fewer of us are these days, you're probably not going to learn how to have a meaningful conversation about something that is hard to talk about and about which reasonable people disagree. Ignore these skills long enough and you get uh, Congress, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. Exactly. I I like to joke that one of the reasons that um, we have so few public models for civil discourse is that it makes lousy television. Um, Screaming and throwing chairs, maybe that would be exciting, but taking time to slow down in a conversation, to pause and think, maybe even risk changing your mind. Um, who wants to watch that? <laughs> However, 
It seems to me that one of the things that the public, the public theater, uh, has done for over half a century, and that you personally are very committed to, is using theater to spark a public, uh, a broader public conversation Absolutely. about matters of shared concern. Absolutely. What are some of the ways you've done this recently? Um, I think the most important, uh, th the, the most important project that we're undertaking right now is a national tour of Lynn Nottage's Pulitzer Prize-winning oh. Sweat. And... This Reading, Pennsylvania, the one Sweat yep. is, is, was built out of Lynn's experiences in Reading, Pennsylvania, spending years getting to know the people there and getting to know the effects on that community of the deindustrialization of the city. Is that because of NAFTA, the last remnants of the steel industry left Reading and went to Mexico, and this town that had been built on steel and industry for over a century decayed from within. And she wrote this brilliant play about that, which won the Pulitzer, we opened here, we took it to Broadway. And now what we're going to do is next fall, we are taking it to 35 rural counties in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, right. Ohio, and Michigan. And the unofficial um, uh, limitation has been that we have only only taking it to red counties. We're only taking it to counties that voted for Trump. And we have found partners in community centers or churches or union halls. So in each of those communities, we will be presenting it in partnership with um, uh, a community-based organization of some kind. And the entire goal is, well, really it's twofold. The first of all is to say to those folks in Red America, we are here for you too. We are not mm -hmm. here only to speak to people who already agree with us. The, the culture in this country belongs to everybody and that includes people who disagree with even the idea that the culture should belong. And second, to try and spark a dialogue in exactly the way you're talking about by saying, you may not agree with our ideas, but let's show you a story that tells a story about a community that may have some similarity to yours. And then let's talk to each other and figure out where we see alike, where we don't see alike. Find a way to give voice to those people as well. It's a huge experiment for us. We've never done anything like this. Um, but I'm really excited about it. And then the dialogue is about how do we reach the most people? How do we create dialogue with the most people? How do we have follow through so that their voices get heard? What kind of advance do we need? So we're working on all of that with the spirit of, of course we don't know how to do this because it's a new thing. Right. So we're going to figure out and there's going to be a lot we learn from this year, a lot we do right, a lot we do wrong. And then we're going to try and come back every year after that. And I, I think it's important, the, Peter, the, the, the genesis of this was right after the election of 2016 when I was in as much shock as everybody else. Mm -hmm. I looked at the electoral map of the United States and said, you know, if you gave me this map and said, look, this is mapping where the nonprofit cultural organizations are in the United States. The blue is where the nonprofit cultural organizations are. The red is where there are none. I would have believed you. It's almost that accurate a map. And then I, you realize at that point that we often act as if those people in the red America have turned their backs on us. We turned our back on them a long time ago. A long How time ago. How do you mean? The culture, the nonprofit cultural sphere, which is my sphere, the way I've spent my life, has said to itself, not passively, it hasn't acknowledged it, that we're not for them. We're not for those farmers in Wisconsin. We're not for those ex-steel workers in rural Pennsylvania. They don't want us. We're not going to talk to them. We're going to talk to the people who like us, who happen Red to Red Wing, be. Minnesota? Red Wing, Minnesota is red. We have never done theater in Red Wing, Minnesota. I named a New York theater after Red Wing, Minnesota. <laughs> but I've never actually performed in Red Wing, Minnesota. Uh -huh. And we have to change that. If That's one of the ways that I feel like my sector of society has contributed to this lack of civic discourse. Huh. We essentially have said we're only going to speak to the people who prove they want us by funding our theaters and building our buildings and buying subscriptions. Those people will speak to. But all the rest of America that doesn't know they want us, doesn't, it, it never crossed their mind that the theater could be exciting for them, 
we need to reach out to them and say, no, we're here for you too. So we're going to try a lot of things. The thing that I'm most excited about is we're just putting the sort of first flesh on the bones of an idea where sweat is about people losing their jobs. And we're going to try and generate workshops that produce writing from people in these communities about their relationship to their job, what their job means to them, what losing their job means to them if they've lost it. But actually try to get people to write. And then the actors in the company will perform those pieces as part of their residency in that city. They'll do sweat, but they'll also perform these people back to them. And if we can do this right, what I'm hoping is that we can basically set up a series of regional um, competitions and that the states and each town that we go to would choose which of these statements best represents the town, send them in to us, and then we'd have a night at the Delacroix in Central Park in which we get our Whoa. best and brightest to perform those. I think that would be amazing. And so the great work of Oscar Eustace in the public theater continues. Thanks to him for taking the time to talk, to the phenomenal Gil Scott Chapman for his piano playing on this episode, and to you for listening, subscribing, rating, and spreading the word about Point of Learning to everyone you know interested in what and how and why we learn. Co-producer credits for this episode belong to Paula Roy, who wrote me back with 11 potential questions within an hour of my telling her I booked this interview, and to Robin Lee Horn, whose vast knowledge of theater feeds my brain whenever I'm wise enough to ask. Back soon with a special edition for National Poetry Month. I think you're going to love it. I, I have to say, Peter, the very first time you were in class with me, you sent me a very polite note correcting my use of the word peripatia and saying, I think you mean agnorisis. And I had to say, not only do I think you're right, but I can't even be sure of that. Because <laughs> I don't know this stuff that well. That is an example. I do not. Uh, I do not recall, but... <laughs> it's a good moment. Yeah. Six, seven, eight. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da